Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. What does it take to survive and ultimately thrive after horrible trauma? Today's guest, my friend, Dedeen Umunyana, was a young child in 1994 during the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. She is a woman who has faced and dealt with severe trauma, yet she found healthy ways to ultimately return to a place of love, trust, and safety. How did she do that? We will find out. Her book, Embracing Survival, is excellent and has been described as an important contribution to our understanding of trauma and healing after unbearable brutality and loss. Dedeen speaks all over the world, sharing her story and describing how she has come out of the worst experiences imaginable and how she can now bring out the best in herself and in others. She is also the host of a podcast called Umoko that is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So join Dedeen and me as we have a candid conversation about life after genocide. Dedeen Umunyana. Welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. It's such an honor for me too. You know, I've met many people in this life, but I've rarely met people who I actually consider royalty. And I actually think of you as royalty. You in my eyes are truly your royal. And I just needed to say that ahead of time. I'll never forget the first night I met you. You came over with one of your closest friends and who's now become one of my close friends, the former neo-Nazi Arno Michaelis, who is on episode number 13 of this podcast. And the two of you were holding these gigantic pumpkins and it was a sight to (laughs) behold. It was around Halloween. And here was a man who belonged to a party that used to be a proponent of genocide. And here was you, a woman who had actually survived it, coming to our house to embrace the Sabbath in our tradition, lighting candles with family, singing songs in both Hebrew with some Arabic tones too, really being, it was just, it was one of those moments that I will never forget in my children still refer to as the finest Sabbath we have ever had. Oh, see, that's the power of what humankind can, can be able to accomplish when we come together, you know? despite our background, despite of where we come from, or the, the religion, the color of our skin. That's, it's just like, you know, it's a, a perfect example that it's, it's impossible it's <laughs> for us to love each other. Yeah. Such an important reminder. And what we're going to be talking in full circle, almost like Pulp Fiction, <laughs> so to speak, in that we're going to be starting with that idea. And then, of course, going into a whole bunch of other ideas and, and mm-hmm. probably ending on that idea. But uh, it's going to be a rocky road along the way because your story is so compelling. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever come across. It is all at once heartbreaking, horrifying, infuriating, terrifying, inspiring, and ultimately a profound testament to the power of the human spirit. I was wondering if you could tell my listeners about what happened in your memory from that night in 1994. It was 1994, it was actually April, the the night of April 6th. So I was born a few years before the 1994 genocide. And so um, in 1994, I was a child, I was a baby, and and I didn't really understand what was happening. Uh, But I know know from, you know, when I'm growing, growing up, learning the history of my country, that's when I got to understand what really was happening. But um, the, the night of April 6, 1994, that's when um, our former um, president, who was a Hutu president, uh, died. His, his plane crashed. He was coming from Arusha. Uh, it's an international court in Tanzania. And then his plane 
was crushed and he died that night. So uh, because of what was happening, the atmosphere in the country in Rwanda before that incident, uh, there was so much hatred towards the Tutsis. And it had, it had, the people had learned that hatred for decades. So when, it, when the, the Hutu president died, the entire country uh, blamed the Tutsis that they have killed uh, the president. Right. So on the radios everywhere, they called out for uh, the Hutus to go out and, and um, exterminate the Tutsi race. So um, unfortunately, I was from, uh, I'm from a Tutsi family. Um, and I remember the morning, in the morning on this April 7th, because the genocide started in the capital city, Kigali, and I was in the Eastern province. Um, so the genocide started spreading from the capital city to uh, all over the country. And it got to where I lived in early in the morning of April 7th. So that's really where my whole life changed. Um, and uh, I remember my aunt, I lived with my grandparents uh, um, and my well, so many of my cousins. And as I mentioned, because of the way the, the planning and preparations of the genocide, the country used to kill or imprison Tutsis who seemed to fight back. So they wanted this genocide to succeed, and they started in the 90s uh, to start killing people. So my parents were young. They were in their 20s, and they were, they, they were in that demographic of young uh, Tutsis who seem strong and they can fight back. So my dad uh, fled um, when my mom was pregnant with my baby brother, and he joined the RPF in Uganda. Um, and, then, and, and then a few months later, my mom uh, fled as well, because uh, after she gave birth with my brother. So they left us and my grandparents. Yes, go ahead. And let's hit the pause button really quickly. Uh, we had a Hutu president, and for many months prior, it appeared that, if I understand correctly, a Hutu rebe rebellious group had been preparing for many months, even not, maybe even years. And years. that when the plane was shot down, it was thought by, that the Tutsis probably did it, but it could have easily have been the Hutus just to start things up. Is my understanding yeah. is that also, and, and so your father, who it's is a Tutsi, mystery. right, it's a mystery, nobody yeah. knows. And so your father, so your father left the country in order to train with the resistance. Yes. Um, well, that was pretty much the only option the, the Tutsi people back then they had. They didn't have that many options to leave the country because they weren't allowed to have passports. Uh, they, you couldn't, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of roadblocks, so you had to show your ID and you weren't allowed to leave the country. So the only option they had was to flee and go to Uganda because Uganda is a neighboring country. They fled to a lot of our neighboring countries, so that was Over, pretty much Burundi, Uganda, wherever they could yeah. go. Yes, so with their survival against uh, and so there you are with your aunt and uncle. I was on oh my the only adult that was at the house and my grandparents' house was my aunt. She was in her late twenties. Yes, Agnes. Um, she was in her late twenties. We were so many cousins and my baby brother. So I remember waking up in the morning because she woke everybody up uh, in, in the morning. Um, and did she had everyone sit in the living room on the on the ground uh, and just stay quiet. So she, I was one of the last kids that she woke. She because I was one of the young cousins there. So when she woke me up, I didn't get what was happening. Um, the few memories I have from that morning was uh, when she woke us early in the morning, that early in the morning, my first thought was we're going to church because that was like the, my favorite activity with her. She's still very a religious person. She goes to church every Sunday or some evening. But that was when I grew up, that was the activity we did together. Um, and I cried. I cried. She, she got everyone ready and I was like, no, no, I, I need to change. I want my beautiful dress. 
I had a beautiful white dress that my grandpa got me uh, at Christmas before that that year. Um, and then uh, and then she got so angry at me. She and then she she told me to be quiet, and if I want anything, I would she just whisper from then on. So I I, I could feel you know uh, something is wrong, but I I don't know what what I did wrong. But she went and came back with my dress. She put it on and she gave me a jar of milk and then we left the house. So she had older cousins holding hands with the younger cousins um, because we're so many. And she, she had my, bro- my baby brother in her back and she couldn't hold hands with every, everyone. And she wanted to make sure she keeps all of us with her. So we get into the street, into the main road where um, there was a lot of uh, Tutsi people had been fleeing throughout the night. And where we lived at my grandparents' home, it was the main road that goes to Uganda. So, it was, so most people used that road walking to Uganda. It's like 10-hour drive. But... Uh, 10-hour drive. Re- Oh yeah, people. So it's really walked. far. So this is like on foot. This it would was take days, days. Of days of walking, um, and a lot of people didn't make it. Of course, they they were attacked everywhere uh, because it, in in few days it was happening all over the country. So there was no like a city where where you can hide or anything. So that's where really the the. That was the first ge- day of the genocide. We joined the people in the streets. Um, and then a few, like few blocks away from my grandparents' house, uh, there were attacks uh, from, from different angles. I have no idea where they came from, but they were singing, you know, the songs of hate. Uh, they had whistles. They were, you know, um, and all those songs, it's really for me now as a grown-up, it's weird because those songs were in the, in the name of God. So they were doing all the killings in the name of, in the name of God. Um, but when they, got, they went, when they got close to us, because we're, we're in the midst of so many other people fleeing for their lives, um, everyone ran for their safety. And that's how um, I, lost, uh, I lost everyone that, that, was, that was with me, my aunt, my cousin. Her name is Mignon. She was like seven years old, I, I believe, back then. She was the one who was holding my hand, but she, you know, she's a kid. She ran as well. Um, and then um, I found myself in the home of perpetrators. So I guess it was the, well, they were my neighbors. So I guess as a, a young child, maybe that was the, the only familiar house that you could go to. I don't know what happened, but the, my memories that I had when I was, after genocide was um, the memories lining up with people who were about to be killed. And it was, it, it came to me as nightmares um, because I couldn't put all the pieces together of what happened to me. I was by myself. Everyone else was um, killed then. Um, so my mom had to take me back. My mom survived where she was in the RPF as well. But she had to take me back to learn of what happened to me uh, during the genocide because she wasn't there. So that's um, pretty much how I learned a lot of what happened to me. So you had a piece, yeah, and you were, I believe, about four years old at the time. Uh, and you were yeah. wearing, a, as you mentioned, a white dress. And, and oh. so, so poetically, I believe you had a butterfly on that dress in the midst yes. of all of this yeah. horror. The few memories I had, which were, which they, I had memories of my, I loved that dress. I get, I don't know, maybe I, I hold on to few memories of what happened then. I remember, I could remember the, the dress and the butterflies, I had like three butterflies on my left chest. Um, and uh, when the few things I could remember was the dress wasn't white anymore because, you know, during genocide, we're killing people with machetes and axes and stuff like that. So um, I remember, I could remember asking for milk and the fear I felt and how I, I, they, they, they did allow me to drink the milk, but they, 
first they were mimicking me and screaming that I, I, I'm a tutti child. If I wasn't a tutti child, I wouldn't be asking for milk. And, and then them allowing me to drink the milk, uh, I didn't really drink it. I, could, I, I, I had those memories of my tongue uh, holding the milk on the, on the mouth of the little jar that I had. Sure. Just terrified. I didn't really drink it. But that the, in the midst of that chaos, people, the perpetrators screaming and mimicking me, the, their grandfather and, and some of the kids, some of the perpetrators were the, the, his kids as well. He heard from inside the house um, and then came out. To, to check out what was going on and why they, they are not doing their job. And excuse me, because during the genocide, killing was work. So if they took a break, if it was raining, and after rain, they would go back. So it was, it was an actual work. So he walks out, checking on them, and then he sees me in the, in the line where um, few uh, People before me were already killed, um, and then there were a few other people next to me. I was the only young pe- person there. The other the young people were probably in the back. So people are hold- their parents were holding them. I don't know, but um, he threw he saw me and recognized me because he was like a third house from my parents, my grandparents' home. So we played with the, with their kids in Rwanda. My grandparents' home. We didn't have uh, that fences like sure no yeah, there was no there was no boundaries you could play together because yeah. the kids would know each other um, and then he recognized me and he, I don't know if he he pitied me or anything but he stopped them yep. and he told them they should be ashamed of killing an innocent child when their wives are holding ch- children not different from from theirs so he grabbed me and threw me uh, uh, holding me between his pair of his legs um and then uh, after then i couldn't remember a few things in there but he threw me under a bed in the house small bed but under that bed there were so many other kids hiding there so uh, he probably saved a lot of uh a lot of children and uh yeah so that was the first day of the genocide but he couldn't hold, he couldn't keep me there because my parents were in RPF, and if you are, if you had parents in RPF, you're the worst enemy to the country. Sure. Didn't care how small I was, I was, you know. So he he took me out of the bed at night and hide me in the field, uh, the banana plantation field. But that was the and that was day one of ni- ni- ninety nine more hundred to get hundred days to go. In total, it was on uh, 99 more days to go <sighs> for a four year old who was on her own. And I know the story is obviously far longer and more developed than we can attend to now, but it's, it's well chronicled as well as possible in your book, which uh, my wife absolutely adored. And, um, <laughs> I didn't, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're a fantastic yeah. writer and, I imagine it was very, very important for you to, to, to write that and to try to find some meaning in the midst of, of the chaos and the aftermath in your mind of the, the, the dreams, the memories, and somehow finding a way to put it together in some, did, was the book, was writing the book healing in some way? Yes, it was. It was very therapeutic because I was able to tap into stories that I never thought uh, they even affected me in any how. Um, I was, I had to do research, understand what happened. Uh, my mom was one of the people that I, I annoyed a lot with a lot of questions because I had, I had to understand. Um, and just writing every part of it was, it was hard, but it was necessary. And um now, few few years later, I'm very grateful that I did because I feel like it was a healing process that I didn't know that I needed. <laughs> right, but and somehow intuitively you went for it. I went for it. I went for it, not knowing that it was going to do me good. Exactly. For me, when I did it, was um, I had started doing uh, 
public speaking here and there, and people will ask me a lot of uh, personal questions that I didn't feel <laughs> comfortable, or I was, I'm a shy, introverted person, and I didn't want to, you know, but I was like, you know, writing was, was my way of surviving when I was growing up, was my way of sharing instead of sharing to a person. I would just write it down. Maybe I should do it now, write it, and then give it to people instead of talking and tell, sharing them my, with my story. And then uh, my journey with uh, even sharing more began. You know, I didn't know. As you share this, uh, I am thinking of one of my favorite definitions of trauma, and that is a shattering of something that you love and depend on and picking up those pieces gluing them back together and creating something new out of that. And then I also think, of course, of Maya Angelou. I believe it was she who said, unless you know where you're from, you don't know where you're going. And it sounds like your intuition really was such a a rich road for you to tap into, to create uh, this, this work that must have taken hours and must have been very painful. But I love the way you said painful, but necessary. And, um, and I'm going to pivot a bit and just go back to the idea that, you know, of course there were political factors in the atrocities of the Rwandan genocide. And I'm just wondering if we get a little more basic and leave politics out for a minute and just talk about the basic human factors. You were saying that Hutus would sing these songs of hate in, in the name of God uh, what did people need to believe, do you think, in order to carry out such atrocities? I really, um, I always like to, uh, to share with my audience that it really is such atrocities don't happen overnight. And it's not something you learn uh, so quick. It's something that becomes almost like your sick that hatred almost becomes like your second nature because you don't know anything else uh outside of that hatred and you might also think that's the only way of living because you haven't been exposed to a different life and i i believe the people that committed a genocide in rwanda there were there were people who were grew up in a society that was consumed by divisionism and the categorization and hatred that they didn't know any life outside of that so when when the government when the politicians called out for meetings and hate hatred for one group they didn't see that it was wrong because that's the only thing they've learned that's what they learned home that's those are the conversations at school because before i I didn't experience that but the older generation of survivors uh even my mom they when they were in school the teachers will have two students standing up because and they kick them out of classrooms yes i'm sorry my mouth is wide open so this was okay this was before the genocide yeah so So that was the hatred began really from the colonials. And so that's when, when you remember the beginning when you mentioned it's genetic. Yes, uh, and I took it back. I know it's a historical thing because you will think it's a genetic thing, especially if people uh, completely believe that we're that different. But before the colonials in 1930s, Forgive me, this is like a little history. <laughs> no, please. Uh, that was your, all right. You're answering one of my other questions. So let's go. Yeah. Colonials oh, really? in the 1930s, okay. and I'm guessing this, these were German colonials. It's that were German, uh, they were, I think, Belgians. All oh, right, Belgians first, right? Uh, yes. And then, and then Germans, because Germans uh, to, um, wait, I, wait. There were, there were Germans, you're right. There were Germans first. Uh, and then the Germans realized there was no, uh, there was no match in Rwanda. There was no minerals. There was no gold or diamonds. It was just a beautiful country, the thousand hills, but nothing more. Uh, they give the country to the Belgians. But the actual hatred they, the, the, they, the, the Rwandans were taught was coming from Germans. And you know what was happening in 1930s, 1940s in Europe? It was Holocaust was going on. So when they came in Rwanda, the country was very organized. And 
they had a system that worked for the citizens. They had they had a king. They had they had a, the tutus were the, the like a first class, um, the elite class it was it was a class system, and then we the had tutsis the tutsis were at the top. Yes, yes, and the tutsis were the middle class. And oh, tutsis. The who, who was that? Oh, the oh, so got it. Tutsi, Hutu, and then Twa at the bottom. At the bottom, yes. Got it. Um, but but if you owned more than ten cows, you could upgrade from the Hutu to to becoming a Tutsi. That's so, all. Took. Ten cows, and suddenly ten cows. You, suddenly, yeah. you're different. It's, it's, yeah, then you're in a different class system. Got it. So it wasn't really about how you look or how tall you are, the dark your skin is, or whatever. It was just uh, it was just social class. It was a, really more of a social class, but everyone was just the same. So when the when the when the the German uh, the Germans came in, they they couldn't understand how this African country has a whole system, you know. The Westerners haven't been here. How are they doing it? So they did a study of how um, the Tutsis looked like and the Hutus and the Twa. And then they classified that as, as ethnics. So they will measure people's nose, how long the nose is, the, the, your hands, how long your hands um, are, or uh, the, your height, everything. And then they will classify you as a Tutsi if you had longer uh, features. And they will say, oh, you look like you know, you're closer to Europe. You're probably from Ethiopia or uh, Somalia. And then uh, they will categorize people that way. But you couldn't, from then on, you couldn't move from a Hutu to a Tutsi class. So because that became your identity. And then the Germans leaves gives the country to Belgians, uh, Belgians, because I think Belgians had Congo. So it was, it was going to be easy to colonialize both countries because they're neighboring countries for Belgians. And, you know, in Belgium, they have, uh, they have ethnics, they have, you know, different languages, they have that sure. their system. So I always believe people give what they have. So pretty much <laughs> the That's Europeans a, they give, what, <laughs> give they us have. what they have. Yeah. yeah, and so they fabricated ethnicity. Ethnicity they did, and it took it took three decades, people until people really took it as their own identity. In 1950s, the the Belgians killed our king, and they and then they they gave the power to the Hutu to the Hutus. But they've been teaching that the Tutsis are not from Rwanda, and they had everything in this country. Why are they the leaders in this? In Rwanda, they should go back to their home country. So that's pretty much where the conflict started. 1950s, um, 59, we had a civil war and the, a lot of Tutsis fled to neighboring countries. Um, and then 56, uh, I mean, uh, 68. And then I think in the late 70s, that's when, or early, early 90s, that's when the RPF uh, was born in Uganda. Um, out of the kids who, the Tutsi children who grew up in exile and they wanted to come home. And the Hutu government said, no, the country is full. If you try to come back in Rwanda, it would be like a glass of, that was a, one of the speech from the leaders. Um, he said, uh, the, actually, the, the, the former president, he said that if Rwanda is like a glass full of water, and if you try to drop one drop of water, it will everything else in the glass will spread. Sure, spill. But it will spill. Sorry. No, no problem. So, yeah, he meant he meant blood. So it, oh, it, that it, blood it, will oh, blood will spill. Yeah, we'll have to make space for you. That's 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 yeah. So in 1990, when the RPF tried to come in, that's that was another civil war. Um, the Hutu government went in homes and, and killed Tutsis. That's when uh, I think two of my dad's brothers were killed. Um, then a lot of Tutsis were killed in 1990, and the, the RFP have decided to, they stopped. But uh, they were 
telling them that if you try to come in, we're going to kill the, your families that are in the country so we can make sp- uh, space for you. So there was very, the hatred was just built on for years and years. And what's so crazy about this whole thing is it was an external group of people who were coming in and classifying with these fabricated ethnicities that were entirely bogus and that the hate began to foment. It began to just grow nice and slowly. I don't mean to say nice in a good way, nice, yeah. but it really slowly and powerfully, so oh, much yeah. so that it was just deeply rooted. Um, you've mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, Hutu men who were married to Tutsi women felt justified in killing their wives if they didn't comply with certain things uh, uh, relating to these so-called ethnic differences and uh, or political reasons. Mm-hmm. And this was all built on a, on a, on a fundamental lie, uh, really, in as much as yeah. uh, so much of, frankly, all racism is it is it is uh, it is and, and i think they used uh the system the colonials uh in who went in africa they had a system called divide and conquer so for for the colonials to be able to succeed on the continent where it was really more of di- dividing the 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 people there so they can be able to control and to control them and t- take the lands so I think Africa is still suffering from the, you know, the post-colonial, uh, yeah. So that whole thing was uh, one of the consequences of colonialism. Sure. So you're describing how just such a horrible sequence of an external group of people coming in, trying yeah. to wage power, trying to divide the people. And mm-hmm. for generations, there has been trauma yeah. as a result of this. Yeah. Um, well, um, I'm going to, uh, go back to your story. Uh, I'm going to zoom back into you. When did when did you begin to feel safe again? Safe, like, like sleep all night. Yeah, so like you could sleep that you, um, yeah. So you, as just by virtue of the, the answer that you're giving me, I'm, <laughs> I'm gathering that perhaps you still don't in many ways feel safe, but, or may, but did, when did you begin to sleep through the night when did you begin to uh, not not feel like you needed to look around with vigilance wondering am i going to be okay Mm. oh yeah um i've been here for six years now and i and the first yeah i think it took me a while to realize wait a minute i am sleeping all night when i got here in, in 2014 the summer of 2014 that's when I realized I'm sleeping all night. I'm not uh, jumping through the night. I'm not waking up nightmares or whatever. Um, that's when I. That's when it hit me that my reality of life has been completely different from what I was experiencing here uh, in America. So I think it's been yeah. It hasn't been a long time, and it's still still. I feel like. Um, when you go through such a thing, it's, uh, you know, it's something, it's, it's, it's your past and it doesn't control everything I do, but I know that it's there. So a similar question, you've seen human behavior at its worst. Yeah. And yet you, you're my friend. I know you well. Uh, you've even given me advice and various things. Uh, no, you have and, given me the advice. Uh, I guess we've both given each other <laughs> advice. <laughs> but, uh, but back to that question, you know, you have seen human behavior at its worst. And I'm wondering, how have you been able to restore your faith in human kindness? Um, I think, okay, so for me, it's been a process. And, and um, learning how to trust, uh, being able to be grateful for just being alive. I mm. think that was the first step that really helped me start seeing life in a different lens. Um, and then people's kindness. Really, we have a lot of good people than we realize. Um, the person who saved my life, just that I thinking about um, the risks he took to save me because being an ally during the genocide in Rwanda, it was also uh, something that people got killed doing. 
So like you mentioned, the, the husbands who kill their wives, they were doing it so they don't, they don't get killed. Well, the Hutu husbands were doing it so... So they won't get killed so by the, the other Hutus. The, the other Hutus, got it. Because it could be perceived as, right, because moderate Hutus were being killed by the extremists. Even the moderate yes. Hutus, got it. Yes. So, yeah, if you weren't in support of what they were doing, you were becoming, you were becoming an ally and it was really uh, dangerous to do then. So I believe the few Tutsis who survived we didn't learn that many that survived. It was because of the few good souls of the Hutu moderator, uh, moderates who, who, um, who saved us. So I think even in the midst of these hatred and um, horrible things are ha- that are happening, there are also good people that are doing their best to, um, to bring positivity and change into people's hearts. So the more I focused on that side of life, it really, really also helped me in, in a way to be able to live and enjoy my life, the, you know, the short life that we have. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And you're wanting, yeah. And you're, you're recognizing the preciousness of, mm-hmm. you know, what seems like perhaps a long life, but in fact, we're here really for a very short period of time, you know, um, and a concept in psychology that I love is post-traumatic growth. And it's basically the idea, you know about it, with, mm-hmm. but I'm just sharing this with the listeners, that when you deal with trauma in a healthful manner, you can become stronger. Uh, I imagine, and by the way, just to contrast that, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is not entirely true. What doesn't kill you could give you crippling PTSD, or you could begin to cope with uh the trauma with alcohol but in your case you know you found healthy coping strategies even um though at 13 you know you would of course like many people you'd considered suicide because things seemed just so grim and and of course one of the one of the hallmarks of ptsd is the inability to imagine a future just uh, the future seems so compromised and yet Dadeen, you somehow got through the sadness and fear you experienced. Um, I see it. I feel it. I'm sure you have moments of darkness even today. But for oh, the yeah. most part, for the most part, I really see you as, as a source of, of great light. And I'm wondering how you got through it. Um, I think I had great examples of um, strong people in my life. My mom was very strong. She raised four kids on her own. Um, she sacrificed everything so we can have a better life. My father lost everything. His entire family was killed and he couldn't see life after genocide. So you um, say what, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think for him was the opposite. He, he, just, he just couldn't, couldn't see he couldn't life. He couldn't see life. Uh, the Tutsi men after genocide. And I saw how much suffering he was going through. At first, as a child, I, like at 13, I didn't see it as he was going through something. I saw it as he was putting us through something. That's, uh, that's what, for me, that was the way I saw, I saw it. And, um, and I was just tired. You know, when you like, when you go through so much, you're, you know, uh, yeah. Fatigue, so just, just overwhelmingly, it's just like, oh, yeah. What, yeah. I mean, you're really. Growing up, yeah, you're growing up in a dysfunctional family. The, the Both parents have lost everything. They, you know, you can't really expect for them to give you the parental love because also they, they are still dealing with the loss. Um, and I guess that as a child, I didn't really understand it until later on in my life that I started looking back and I, and I see how much suffering my father had. And as I, I saw it as an example for me, if I don't take care of myself, I may end up like that. So he was pretty much, I would say, I would say he was, a, he was, a, he was, uh, he was a perfect example for me and my siblings to know not what path to you know, to try and not get to and take unnecessary means. And that was the same case with my mom. She, 
she always made it made it clear to us that you have no option to get traumatized. I remember when I was like 16, I would go to school instead of telling me, uh, you know, yeah, I'm a teenager, you know. She's supposed to say, you know, don't uh, be careful with the boys and whatever. Hopefully. You know, that's it. <laughs> and I was a boarding the, the, school. The normal stuff. And <laughs> the normal stuff. And she would be like, do not dare get traumatized. I cannot lose you too. Which is not what kids hear. That because, but this, is, this was the echoes in her brain from trauma. So, so yeah, so you, I, I use the word fatigued and I, it was a bad word. I mean, you weren't fatigued. You were completely, completely empty. You, you were, yeah. there was nothing left yeah. and you were looking to, you were looking to grownups to reflect hope and strength. And they also had nothing Most, in their yeah. gas tank, nothing. in Yeah. Their gas tank. So, yeah. So as harsh as that sounded in my years when I was growing up and my high school, all the other teenage kids, survivors, were always going through trauma. So much trauma, they would be hospitalized. And, and I think because of what my mom told me, I always felt the need of helping them. So it, when, when, when we had a kid going through trauma, my first instinct was to help them get out of it. So I really never got the time to get traumatized. <laughs> so, you, were, you, were, you were a so provider. I, I was, yeah, I didn't get that time and it kind of saved me. And when I had my, whatever my feelings, I knew that everyone else around me is going through a lot. So the only way for me to let it out was to, you know, I, I, I became a, a church girl. So I would be in the choir uh, singing and I would see my pain out. So there was, I think the circumstances also in my life kind of shaped me to become, you know, the the person I am now. You know, I love what you just said. You looked to your mom who was, you know, a symbol of strength. You helped other people and you sang away your pain. I think that's really, uh, I think that's brilliant. Um, you know, I really do. Um, you know, it's my understanding and please correct me if I'm wrong, that finally the people of Rwanda who were once Tutsi or Hutu are now mm -hmm. really just all Rwandans. And what I've understood also is that they've done it maybe the most incredible form of healing rituals, forgiveness. And I was wondering, what do you know about these rituals? What do you know about the forgiveness process? Can you describe how they've been able to accomplish the seemingly impossible human feat? It's a complicated question. Oof, I know, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, now the doctor in you came out. So... <laughs> He's always there. I, he's, 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 I, I tell him, I, I tell him to please just take a break once in a while. <laughs> um, it's, I don't think my country is completely healed. You know, it's, it's, it's a journey that it's going, you know, genocide for itself to happen. It took three decades, you know, for people to get into that much hatred and, and, you know, get to the genocide. So for me, it's easy to learn hate and act on it. It's even harder to learn love and act on it. So if it took three decades for my people to learn hatred and act on it, it's going to take us longer. So I, it's been only 20, I think 27 years now. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I see the progress. I, I like that we have the progress. We, uh, we, learned our real history like you said earlier you can't know where you're going unless you know where you come from i think that was the first step to for us to learn our real history and and figure out where we want to go and where we wanted to leave the country um and then and then i think the next step was we learned these ethnic things it was not genetic <laughs> let's try and to unlearn it and see each other as Rwandans. So they started first and know our ID cards. So in ID cards, we don't have tribes anymore. It just we all Rwandans. Um, if you're applying for a job, if you're going to school, they don't ask you what tribe or ethnic you are. How old are you? What's your name? That's it. How your brain, how your brain functions. That's pretty mm -hmm. much... Yeah, what they look for. I think those were really beautiful steps 
for my country to take. Um, and then it's, and then it's not, it's, it's the, the system, it's set up that way, but it's going to take a long time for generations and generations for also, uh, people themselves in their hearts to clean up that mess that was made, you know, like I can't, you know, I can't forget what happened. May, my children won't have maybe as much trauma if I heal completely. My children, my children won't have like, trauma, but they will know the history. So it's more, it's a balance. I can't say that um, we did a miracle in Rwanda and, and uh, we're completely healed. It's, it's a journey. Yeah, for sure. And and in no way did I mean to imply that the healing has taken place at 100%. Uh, Just my understanding is that some very powerful um, exchanges have occurred that can at least begin the process. And that would probably have been a better way for me to have asked the question that, uh, that there have been rituals, there have been uh, communications and there's been a lot of female leadership, uh, I guess, yes. in the absence of, of men because so many men died. Um, so many men died or so many men killed then in prison. Sure. That's what I meant to yeah, <laughs> yeah, say. So, killed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing how, how, how my brain actually yeah. almost as a self defense, I, I, it's almost hard for me to say the word killed in it's, it's just so atrocious. It's, it is. It's a horrible, horrible word. It's a horrible word, and that's exactly what it. And we got to give it the right name. They were they were killed. Um, Dadeen, I imagine there are a lot of misunderstandings of your story that you wish people would understand. And is there anything that comes to mind as I ask, what do you wish people understood that they might just not get? I think. Um, I, I believe people change. Um, they, they can change to be bad. They can also change to be good. And giving that space to uh, one another to change, you know, uh, not push each other away. I feel like that may help. I don't know. But um, I also believe that human spirit is really strong, that it can never be squashed. So just as individuals, knowing that, knowing that it, it gives us strength, knowing that my spirit, my soul is really strong. It can never be squashed. It gives you, if, if it fills you and it gives you more strength to, and hope to, um, to live a bigger life, not just, not just for me, for, the, for other people as well, knowing that we have something to do. We all have something to do. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. So, Dadeen, it's my second, my second to last question, and that was yes. that was lovely. Uh, if is there anything that you kind of wish I had asked, but I haven't yet asked? Oh, Adam, you were so good at asking. I don't think there were you asked me <laughs> too much. Every, okay, every then I, I have, I've got a final question. Believe it or not, <laughs> and that is, yeah. Dadeen, what do children and adults, for that matter, need to learn in order to reduce hateful acts? What do we need to learn? What do we need to learn? To ensure a better future. I, um, I would say, especially here in this country, you know, um, I, I, I feel like America is a powerful country. And the message America give, shares, it goes to the entire right. continent. It spreads really quickly. So... How can you use that much power? And the power we have, how can you use it in, in making the world a better place? And, the, and, and, uh, and I think the power really starts home. It starts while we're telling our children the conversations the parents are having because sometimes parents don't realize how much the kids take in because as young as they can be, they hear everything. And they, sometimes they interpret our school. So it's more of like, how are we teaching our children love and kindness and so that we, they, don't even, they don't even know that, that that much hatred can exist. You know, like how are you preparing them at a very young age to grow up having compassion and being, you know, empathetic, um, having empathy towards uh, 
everyone in the world, just knowing that, just teaching them uh, the power of humanness, like the togetherness. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, <laughs> go together. That we need, we, uh, we need each we other. We need each other. We do. And, and you also have said in the past something that may relate to this last question. And I loved it uh, because there's a Native American saying that we all have two wolves inside of ourselves, one evil, one good. And it, yeah. whoever we feed is who wins. And I've heard you say that even in Rwanda, there's that saying uh, yes. to some extent, same idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so know that you have both and choose to feed the light in you. You know, uh, the more you feed it, it will, you know, it will, it will fight the darkness inside. But we, we have both of those things inside of us. We just need to focus more on the positive side of what you know. So I guess before we finish, there was something you mentioned a long time ago, and I always bring it up in my talks. Uh, the um, you said something about I asked you about about uh, your work and the main thing that people are looking for, or what you have in mind when you have a client when the client is coming in. And you mentioned something that was really special to me. And you said, you said, you said that all people want is to feel felt. Mm, you like that one? Yeah, we want to oh, feel felt. Oh, I love felt. that one. Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so I'm glad. Good. Yeah. When people <laughs> say, do you feel me, man? Yeah. We want to feel felt. Yes. Yeah. We want to feel felt. So I really, really oh, love that. So glad that that yeah. landed with you. And uh, <laughs> I feel very felt with you. And I'm going to bust out <laughs> my first attempt at Murakoze Urakoze. Oh, Murakoze is that, <laughs> is that Is that thank you in your language? Yes, Murakoze, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Nadine, for sharing your wisdom, <laughs> your experience, your pain, your light. Aww. Everything you, you just so showed up in your whole self. And for your support, for your friendship. Um, thank you so much. Are we, I appreciate you. Right back at you, sister. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. <laughs>